0: Today's episode is inspired by a few conversations I've had over the last couple of weeks. Someone asked me about my coaching business. Like someone asked, uh, what kind of people do you coach? Uh, like what kind of people reach out to you for coaching? What, who are your clients like? And I answered him by saying, uh, well, it, it kind of depends on where they are at in life. And I, and I, I was just thinking out loud and I described, uh, yeah, guys typically in their 20s, they want this type of thing. It's usually this type of person who reaches out to me when they're younger. You know, in their 30s, it's like this type of person. They typically want these types of things, 40s, etc. And then I had to check my answer because, you know, it's not necessarily age-related, right? There are people in their 40s, let's say like a newly divorced person who has very much the same desires as a guy who's 23, right? So I corrected my answer to say, like, well, there's it depends what phase they're in, right? There's different phases men go through. And based on what phase of life, what phase in their journey they're at, that's typically uh, what they're looking for and what we end up talking about in the coaching sessions. right? Different phases, men have different desires. Uh, they have different self-concepts. They have different ways they typically want to relate to women. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what I settled on. And I was thinking about this for myself, um, as I'm certainly entering a new phase, expecting my first child now in a couple weeks. In fact, when this episode comes out, I may have a baby because, you know, we're a couple of weeks ahead of schedule. And uh, I was thinking about this for myself and how I'm entering a new phase and and a phase that obviously I haven't experienced because it's new. So I was looking for advice, as I typically do. I was looking for things to read, things to uh, enlighten me. And I was was basically just Googling for uh, uh, fatherly advice or not Googling. I don't use Google. Duck, duck going (laughs) to be accurate. I was uh, uh, searching for good uh, books for fathers. And I kept coming across like similar kinds of like top 10 books for new dads, this and that, you know, the typical stuff that uh, seems to populate search engine results. And I noticed myself feeling uneasy at first, and then kind of getting pissed off. And it was somewhat late at night. I I was doing this because I wasn't sleeping well that night. And I was like, why am I pissed off? And I realized Almost all of the things, like pretty much everything I saw as far as ad, ad, uh, good resources for new fathers. It, it wasn't that the advice was bad. I, I didn't end up even purchasing any of the books. I was just reading, you know, the descriptions. It was the way I'm sure there's actually good stuff in the books. I'm sure, but the way they are presenting the father archetype, they all presented it as if like all dads are like bumbling fools and you know, and I was realizing it's like kind of marketed or they're speaking to a man who sees himself as a boy. And I think that's what was making me first uneasy and then kind of pissed off. And I was like, obviously, uh, maybe I don't have the same taste as the mass market. But is is this really representative of like the mass of new fathers that they all kind of see themselves this way as idiots like this? And you know, I know, I, I haven't actually been a father yet. So maybe this is arrogant of me to say, I'm sure I'll be challenged by many things. But for me, from all this, all the perspective I have, it seems to be very not conducive to being a good father is to see yourself as an idiot. Anyways, I decided I wasn't going to follow. I mean, there's nothing that resonated with me as far as, uh, you know, uh, how to help me step into my father archetype, this phase of my life. Um, so I was looking in other sources and around this time, simultaneously, I have a friend who uh, is recently married. Uh, he's had some troubles in his relationship, and he he, he asked me for reading reading material suggestions. And uh, you know, I, I know him pretty well. I pointed him to the Red Pill community, which uh, you know, I'm, if you've caught me uh, speak about them in any other podcast, I, I am I say what I'm about to say now, which is, it's full of really accurate, precise, grounded information that's very useful to men. It's a bit reductionist, but there's nothing wrong with that. It keeps us grounded. It's very, very cause and effect actionable information, a bit dogmatic, but, but a lot of groups are, you know, men are this way, women are this way, etc. That's, I don't even have an issue with that. But every time I mention red pill, I say that those positives, but I also bring up what, in my opinion, is the big negative, which is the tone in which they speak about women. Also, I feel like is, uh, not conducive to healthy relationships in the long run, right? I mean, they, they go a little bit harder than, say, no more Mister Nice Guy of giving men like these hard truths, which I think is useful, especially if they've uh, you know gone in the wrong direction mentally. But there's something about the way they speak about women, and, and I taken in the wrong way, in the wrong context, over a long period of time, I think can be uh, negative. And I'm speaking about this, you know, I, I, every time I recommend checking out red pill to anybody. I say some version of this. And I said it to my friend, of course, and you know, he's been reading it, and we've been discussing it. And, um, he was like, well, you know, maybe a more accurate way to say this is that it's really useful for a certain phase of life. I mean, I don't think he said phase exactly, but something like that. Like if you're in a certain situ- life situation, it's like the best thing for you. If you're not in that life situation, maybe it's not the best thing. So again, this idea of stages, so I've been thinking about this, of course, with all of, these, uh, all of these inputs on this idea of how the male psyche goes through different phases of life. Um, also, a lot of the, the fulfillment episode we did a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago now, um, working off of Ted Kaczynski's idea of fulfillment, of being in tune with nature, this whole idea that primitive man was so fulfilled in every stage of his life that he can go on to the next stage, including death, including aging, without any fear, or resistance, because he was so fulfilled in each phase, it made me think about the stages of the male psyche, right? The, the stages that we go through, and how it's, it's an ideal to be so in tune with your nature, with your evolutionary nature, that you get everything that you want out of every phase of your life with no resistance, and you can basically be at peace, whatever phase you're at. Because almost all psychological issues, and not just for men, come from this idea that we're kind of divorced from our natures. Our lifestyles, many of our ideologies are not in tune with our nature. It gives us feelings of shame or inadequacy or just uneasiness or things are just not right, even when they seem like they should be. Say when we follow uh, the consumerism manifesto. Uh, I spoke about this a bunch in the semantics episode. I won't rehash that, but my, my general belief has been if we can realign with our nature, which is changing, right? There's no sta- one static way to be a man. If, but if you can realign with your physiological evolution, basically, it's almost like just like Peter Pan sewing back on his shadow. You can sew your psyche back onto what stage your body is in. That's how you achieve the most fulfillment and peace and fullness of expression as a man. So in this episode, we're going to go through what I'm calling the five phases of the male psyche, and we're going to look at it from three primary lenses, the first being the evolutionary lens. I mean, my basic premise, and I'm drawing this from thinkers like Kaczynski, that uh, our bodies go through a physiological evolution, right? And there's five phases I'm going to identify of how our physical body matures, and our psyche has evolved to transform alongside our bodies. Modern society has divorced this, but that's the cause of a lot of issues, especially with masculinity. I mean, men especially are divorced from our nature. Men certainly are. Women are too. Uh, so we're going to start with the evolutionary lens because it's the most grounded. It is the uh, least abstract and most sane, which is where I like to start. If if, uh, if you caught the semantics episode, you know why. Um, but it's not the only lens we're going to look at it from. The second is... On the other end of the spectrum, we're going to look at uh, these five phases throughout what I'm going to call the slave to king myth. It's uh, kind of a take on Joseph Campbell's monomyth, but one specifically identifying the development of the male psyche, archetypes that resonate with men more. And we're going to use this idea um, to point out different types of fiction, different uh, common uh, popular fiction stories that resonate with different phases and like and what this says about our subconscious longings or our subconscious desire right uh, for, we're talk about movies like Scarface and why uh, ad- something about Scarface really resonates with fourteen year old boys but not so much with fifty year old men let's say, and some other uh, some other contemporary myths uh, based on this slave to king structure. you could guess what it means: start as a slave, develop into king, and the third is. In terms of function. So the evolutionary keeps us on the reality. The slave to king myth is the, the more meaning side of things. The third lens is the function of masculinity. And I think the best way to understand the function of masculinity is in, in looking how it relates to its opposite or how it complements what we call the feminine. Masculinity, of course, is a relative concept, um, even though I often like to ground it in saying it's the, 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 the traits that uh, correspond with testosterone. Masculinity as a concept, as an abstraction, only makes sense to categorize given that there's something opposite to it. Femininity, right? If there was no femininity in existence, if somehow that was possible, we could still have all the masculine traits, but there'd be no point in calling it masculinity, right? It's a relative concept. Just like if there was no right, left would mean be meaningless. So, when we speak about the relation to the feminine in each of these five phases. and And just... A lot of the issues that men have with women being whether it being in early dating or mother issues or later relationship issues is often in my opinion a mixing of these stages right you're you're behaving like you should have behaved as a toddler in your adult relationship or or something or some other mix up like that and we're also going to touch on just uh, just i mean I wanted to make this the most comprehensive model possible, so we're going to reference some other models that you probably have heard of. Uh, such as David Data's Three Stages of Men. Um, if you follow my friend Brian Beijin, you probably heard about that through him. He speaks about it a lot. Um, we're also going to speak about Nietzsche's uh, metamorphosis phases, and of course, a little bit of everyone's favorite Carl Jung. I'm also going to mention different ideas from Men's Work, primarily Red Pill, because I've been reading a lot of Red Pill. I think it's very useful for certain stages, and just see, just point out where it fits in into this model. The Rwando Podcast is brought to you by Kudra. Kudra is a caffeine-free adaptogen beverage that I'm drinking right now because it helps lower my cortisol. I also think it tastes great. I could check that out at drinkkudra.com, drinkkudra.com. And of course, we're also brought to you by viewers like you. If you're listening on Spotify or any app that you can rate it on, it'd mean a lot to me if you rate this show, if you like it, of course. And if you know anybody who would get a lot out of this episode, Please share it with that person. Perhaps a guy who's stuck in a phase and needs to move on to the next phase. All right. Right now, you're listening to episode 140 the five phases of the male psyche. Phase one is what I'll call infancy. Infancy is marked by dependence. Our infant boy is completely dependent on his mother. I mean, from Birth and even before birth, literally inside mother's body, and then after birth, uh, dependent on her breast for milk, uh, her love for security, all of that, right? It is a totally rational and healthy program to be fully dependent and fully receptive on his mother, and really just in general, but specifically to his mother. This is a good thing, right? Like if we could just imagine um, in a, a infant boy who somehow rejected nourishment, that, that wouldn't be a good thing, right? That, that infant would not last very long. Uh, so not, not a useful program. So it, it's good to recognize that in every phase of life, there's certain programs we could call instincts that have a function, right? Some of those functions might be outdated for our modern life. Some of those functions are outdated for the phase of life, right? This is being one of them. You know, for an adult man to be super dependent on women not a useful thing, right? Not going to lead to his fulfillment, certainly not the fulfillment of anyone he's with. But for a baby, it's totally useful. And I like looking at this in this way, because a lot of times it's very easy to shame oneself for a certain impulse or instinct, you know, a desire or a tendency. But when we know where it comes from, it can take a lot of the pressure off, a lot of the self-pressure off. And we can realize that all of these behaviors that we have specifically things that are involuntary or instinctual they're basically tools sometimes the tools are misused and that's what causes problems in our life right like you wouldn't use a jackhammer to open a can of tomatoes doesn't mean the jackhammer is a bad tool you just need to find out where it works dependency very useful thing when you're an infant receptivity very useful thing when you're an infant and also at some points when you're not an infant the big thing with the, from the infant, infant boy's perspective, his relationship to the feminine is completely represented by his mother, right? For a really small infant, the mother is the only woman that matters, right? All of his initial feelings about femininity, like she is the representation of everything. She is the first imprint for all of his relationships with women. There's a common idea in tantric Schools of Thought uh, where, you know, treating women like goddesses, seeing them as goddesses, you could take that, you know, resonates with some, res- doesn't resonate with others. But for an infant boy, when you were an infant, your mother was, a—I mean, for everything you can possibly perceive, she was a goddess, right? She gave you everything, right? She was a source of everything. She was the world, because uh, you didn't know anything else about the world. Again, also useful to understand, because You know, we could even argue that things like one-itis or when a guy gets sucked into a personal fable or obsessive in a way that's maybe not healthy in his later relationships, that program came from something. That program came from this infancy stage. Now, the issue with these programs, of course, is when they persist, right? So like um, what we call nice guy syndrome is for the most part, uh, an adult man using strategies, programs from his infancy and boyhood, now with adult women, right? There's like a translation of how he treated his mom to how he's treating his lovers, right? And that's, that's already in our common language, right? Uh, Many women complain of like, Oh yeah, I've become my boyfriend's mother or like I'm always mothering guys I date, right? Something I've heard a lot from female friends. And you know, a lot of guys identify this in in themselves, right? Like I turned my girlfriend into my mother, my friend Patrick, who was just on the podcast uh, probably last episode, Said something I mean he had that experience. a lot of people have that experience when they identify that what we 're calling nice guy syndrome. Uh, Jung called uh, when a, a man is reacting to his mother 's image essentially in his mind the mother complex right the man 's mother might not be around, might be dead, might be in a different part of the world, but the imprint of how he related to that woman who was the most important woman in his infancy has stuck around. Um, And, you know, maybe her voice is in his head. And maybe how he treats women when he feels love ends up reverting to this way he related to his mother. And this is an important thing as we go through the stages and specifically in how a man relates to what we're calling the feminine, which is the, say, archetypal representation of women, is that when it comes to our unconscious one, our unconscious is uh, like the symbol-making part of our unconscious, the meaning-making part of our unconscious is one, it's uh solipsic, right? It's uh, it sees you know, everything is about it, right? And you can, you know, this is often identified in, in little kids. Like if mom is mad, it means something about me and I must have done something wrong. There's this idea that you're the center of the world. And this persists right in, in our unconscious where basically anything is meaning something, right? The second thing, is that these archetypes, like what we're calling the feminine with quotes around it, to our unconscious it's parts of it are impersonal, right? like the uh, we're going to talk about the Oedipus complex in a in later phase. It's not that men literally want to sleep with their mother. it's that this is a representation of changing of how we relate to the feminine in our minds. If you like the general semantics lens, you could even say it's kind of a, a confusion or of a confusion of abstraction, right? Like uh, the young man's, unco- the man's unconscious sees uh, this first woman that he loves relates to this woman, his mother, in a certain way. So later on, when he falls in love again, when he feels that feeling of love with a woman, with a, a female, a person with female energy, he reverts that old way. What causes this? Well, we could say it's kind of a, a lack of completion or some. Um, arrested development, something that's preventing full transition into the next phase, something that's having us still hold on to these earlier strategies, which were meant for our tadpole phase, but now we're a frog and we're still acting like a tadpole. So some things that can cause this arrested development, of course, are things like overmothering. right? If your mother wasn't willing to, willing to let you grow up or, or requiring you to meet her needs, requiring you to be a small pet... For her needs, for instance, I mean, this is often identified as the roots of, you know, uh, mother complexes and nice guy syndrome and things like that, right? E- even at young ages, you know, if you think of uh, a three-year-old who hides behind his mom's skirt, that's usually kind of cute, right? You know, it's, you have to be kind of a jerk to uh, find judgment in that. But for a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old boy to hide behind his mom's skirt, yeah, there's just something that makes everyone uncomfortable. It's like, it's this recognition that he's relating to her in the, in, in the not, yeah, we'll just call it the wrong way, a, a way that is not useful for his physical level of maturity. Um, and, you know, mothers are not the only thing that cause a uh, nice guy syndrome. I, maybe you wouldn't call it mother complex if it wasn't attached to a, to a mother, but as uh, you know, Robert Glover and different people in the red pill community identify there's kind of a societal coddling, right? A societal mothering of men rooted in collectivism and feminism and kind of just a general thing in a consumerist society that treats everybody as kids. You know, you know. aside from this evolution of the male psyche, one of my uh, criticisms of modern culture is that it has all people grow up a little bit too slow. And this hurts women as much as men. In fact, it arguably hurts women even more because, uh, you know, it forces women to... Have children when their biological clock is ticking in a very small uh, window—it's just not natural. Another uh, subject entirely. But this societal coddling reinforces infancy behaviors in people, even though you might not think of it as infancy. But this feeling of helplessness, of de- of, uh, of yeah, of that there's something wrong and you can't do anything about it. We typically call this anxiety, right? Like this feeling of there's some like survival issue, but. I can't really do anything about it and it just feels weird, right? That's almost our the one of the more common working definitions of anxiety is this feeling of fear that's not tied to anything, right? This is uh, in Timothy Leary's uh, circuit model, eight circuit model of consciousness, this is bad circuit one imprinting, right? Triggering of our survival circuit. This is all infancy stuff. You know, so it's blocked by overmothering. Um you know, this uh arrested development could be caused by societal coddling which reinforces infancy strategies. Because to be coddled in this way, to be protected in this way, is basically to not be your own person. It's uh, in Nietzsche's phases of metamorphosis, which is kind of his uh, model for, we could call it the spiritual evolution of a person, uh, of people. This infancy stage corresponds with his what he calls being a sheep. Uh, the sheep is totally dependent, doesn't think for itself, you know, we have all these associations with sheep. Uh, sheep is, you know, simply followers. And you know another uh, another lens in which to look at infancy, in in what, what I'll call the slave to king myth, is this infancy phase is kind of like being a slave, right? And I know for an, an, a literal infant, it's it, it, you know the negative connotation of slavery is fine, but for anyone outside of that uh, of that phase, outside of infancy, to be treated like an infant. To not be able to not be treated like an infant is essentially being a slave, right? Like you you can't do things for yourself. You you have no no autonomy. Thankfully, very few people get fully stuck in in infancy, um, despite the overmothering of the world and, and mainly the societal coddling, I think is the main issue. Thankfully, this transition into the next phase starts before our minds are developed enough to really take in, you know, these cultural memes. Essentially, like it's happening through our bodies before our minds are developed enough to be warped. Um, and we, we note this in, in as young as toddlerhood. You know, we call it the ter- terrible twos where kids are basically really annoying to their parents because they are developing their sense of the word no. They're developing their own personal boundaries, their own individual desires. And very often, I mean, one of the reasons why it's called the terrible twos is that it's it kind of feels like a rebellion. It's like uh, in the two year olds world, it's kind of we could liken it to like an archetypal slave's rebellion of like I am not gonna be a dependent blob anymore, right? I'm I I have things that I want to do. I'm shaking my fist at the world, you know, I, I'm gonna be something, right? I'm I I want something, right? From the two year old's worldview, or or you know, when the two year old is rebelling against his parents for the first time, that's kind of what's happening on the inside. Which brings us into the next phase. Which we're calling boyhood. Now, initially, when I was sketching out these phases of the male psyche, I actually had put infancy and boyhood in the same category of just like, I think I was just calling it childhood or boyhood. But one of the reasons why I'm separating the two is due to Nietzsche's model. Nietzsche's first two phases in his metamorphosis model has a separation between the sheep and the camel. People start as sheep, where they're kind of bumbling followers. And then you become a camel where they're a more self-aware, hardworking follower. And I thought that this, uh, this, uh, this separation was actually a useful one because there, there is a difference between an infant boy's consciousness of like pure helplessness and the boyhood consciousness of having a personal identity, knowing who he is, you know, having his own desires, but still being under the reign of his parents, right, in the realm of his Father and mother. Whereas infancy is marked by total dependence, boyhood's kind of marked by willful servitude, right? The kid goes to school, even though maybe he doesn't really want to. Uh, he eats his vegetables, even though he doesn't want to. He's doing these things, doesn't really want to, but he's, he's putting in the effort, right? Like he doesn't, he hasn't fully, fully rebelled. You know, he hasn't really broken free yet. In this phase of life and psychological development, we see a shift uh, the beginning of a shift of how he relates to the feminine now you know of course, little boys they even at fairly young ages become uh, attracted to girls, still has a very strong connection to his mother, but it's starting to shift it's uh it's a transition period between dependence on mommy, which as this relationship to the feminine to actual like engaging uh, of intimacy there's like that innocent romance that occurs uh you know between infancy and puberty. Uh, Where there's attraction, and it's kind of like you're trying out how you relate to women that are not your mom. This is where uh, young children, boys and girls, are exposed to a lot of Disney type uh, mythologies. And, you know, regardless of your opinion, you know, I'm not anti Disney uh, at all, but you also see it it does kind of reinforce an element of, um, or I should say, something that probably happens to everybody earlier in life, which is this idea of the personal fable, right? This idea of like kind of head over heels infatuation that kind of seems crazy when you're older, right? If you think of your very first crush, whether someone you actually dated, you know, you were like boyfriend and girlfriend when you were little or maybe a little bit older, or even someone who just had a crush on, right? Like I think of some of the crushes I had when I was, uh, prepubescent, they were kind of insane, right? They were, there was like, um, a pure romance because obviously my sexuality hadn't developed yet, but there was an attraction to women, but it was, it was, there was an instance to it, right? There was like a, a romance to it that maybe has been reinforced by uh, things like Disney. But it, I think there's also probably this uh, archetypal part of worship, right? Before you see women as someone you engage with sexually, there's a transition phase from seeing, you know, from the love you have for, for mother to before you actually take on real lovers. Now, if the infant was a slave, the boy is kind of like uh, kind of like a house servant, like a like a willing servant, right? Like a and from an evolutionary perspective, a seven year old boy, for instance, even if he disagrees with his parents, has very little to gain in total by total rebellion, right? Like he's still he still needs his parents. In fact, not only does he need his parents. For him to continue to be in, under the protection and provision of his parents, he needs to contribute something, right? He might have chores or he might have to just do stuff, go to school. There's things he has to do. And for the most part, even though he might not want to do it, he is choosing to do it because it's good for him. It's the boyhood phase where pleasing authority becomes useful, right? In infancy, there's not enough consciousness to choose to please authority. Like it's what you want to do the most anyway is to. Suckle from your mom's breast and be cute and whatever. The boy does have choice. He is obviously more conscious than the infant, and he sees that he gets a lot out of pleasing the people in power because he doesn't have power yet. This is where a young person learns the abstractions that uh, can be so damaging at times and the source of many psychological problems, which is the idea of absolute right and wrong. A young boy. Has no concept of right and wrong until he's told that right, uh, right and wrong are what his mom and dad say, or what the church says, or what the teacher says. Right? And he just takes it. You know, there's no, there's no idea that what the teacher said is right and wrong might not actually be right and wrong. Like, there's no concept of subjectivity. It's like, oh, an authority figure said this is these are this is the category of things that are good, and these are the, this is the category of things that are bad, and that's how it is, line in the sand. You know, uh, and it's basically what we we could call a confusion of the orders of abstraction, or rather a semantic disturbance, taking the subjective for absolute. Now in boyhood, especially in early boyhood, because of course, as the boy comes closer and closer to puberty, uh, he takes on more adult traits, but in, you know, the peak of boyhood, let's say, in young boyhood, approval equals survival. Again, it is the most useful strategy to survive and to have a healthy well-being to get approval from people in power. Now again, people pleasing behavior, when we when we talk about people pleasing behavior, it's it's almost always framed as this very negative thing. But certainly, you know, to care about what your parents think when you're seven, not not the worst thing. It's it's whether or not it persists when it no longer is useful. Nietzsche called this phase the camel because the camel works hard, doesn't question Reminds me of in uh, an Animal Farm, George Orwell's horse. The horses were really hard workers who like they just wanted to work hard and they didn't question anything and they didn't think that maybe what they're working on is not the best thing. They just want to work hard because it gives approval, it makes them feel good, it makes them feel a part of the collective. The boyhood phase is also where the boy is now conscious enough to one care about masculinity on some level and absorb the modeling of male role models. So of course, the primary, the primary male role model is his father in hunter gatherer cultures. It might not just be your father. I mean, of course, there are different types of social configurations of uh, tribes that were more monogamous versus not. But regardless, there was a a more of a collectiveness, a more of an extended family bonding in in that era, uh, the era with which, for which our nervous systems evolved for. So the young man's role models back then, male role models, were not just his father, but also the father of the tribe, right? Like the tribe, the the chief, is kind of the father of all the fathers, in, in a sense, right? If the father is the head of the immediate family, the chief is kind of the father to the greater family of all the families together, essentially. Since in modern life, we don't have that, unless you were lucky to really live around a lot of extended family or you know, all of your neighbors were really, really close. Most of us didn't have that kind of tribal upbringing. Uh, the male role models that young boys are drawn to are other shows of essentially hyper masculinity: superheroes, athletes, anyone demonstrating essentially power. Right? That's that is what superheroes and athletes represent to a boy, and in superhero mythology and sports again this idea of like line in the sand good good versus evil us versus them is very uh is very defined and not very nuanced All right if you look at any superhero movie for the most part i think uh superhero movies are getting a little bit more adults but the that even now the typical marvel movie is like there's the evil guys and there's the good guys and it's very clear right there's there's not like uh they don't typically go into the motivations of the evil guy or how he's maybe not evil in his eyes. And it was just like, no, he's a bad guy. We're the good guys. The bad guy must be stopped. There's not a lot of nuance. Sports also kind of, kind of reflects this same kind of thing. There's our team and there's their team. We're good and they're bad. We're going to celebrate when we beat them and when they lose, essentially. And I think about as a kid, I really was into baseball and I grew up hating Chipper Jones, Chipper Jones, uh, star player of the, the Atlanta Braves in the 90s. Why did I hate him? He was a good baseball player. I love baseball. I should have liked him. I also played third base sometimes. But I hated him because he was of the other. He was of the team that and and you know, in terms of like warrior archetypes, he was like the the champion of the other army who was the most threatening to my army, right? To my baseball team. So, of course, I just hated him. I hated him as a default. Now much is often made in these so-called crises in masculinity of the lack of uh, strong fathers or some people just identify fatherless homes or uh, not enough caring, but it's also strength, right? A young boy who has no role model demonstrating strong masculinity is probably not going to develop strength himself, right? If, if he sees that the most, um, the, the biggest immediate authority on masculinity is a guy who's really weak or a guy who folds easily is insecure, he's almost certainly going to take those traits, right? It's very unlikely that, you know, he'll just magically become super confident when his father wasn't, or that he'll uh, magically become very uh, comfortable in relating to women when the men in his life are not, or maybe that they fold easily. Because traditionally, through the boyhood phase, up until the end of the boyhood phase, the boy basically lived in the land of women he lived in wherever the settlement was you know maybe he was treated a little bit differently than girls but for the most part he was just a kid around his mother a lot uh, wasn't out with the men where they were often doing dangerous things so that was his world and without some sort of active transition he stays there and and we can argue i think many people have argued and not just me that a lot of the lacks of strength in male character that many guys have, whether they have nice guy syndrome or any sort of, you could call it beta or the red pill community would call it blue pill behavior a blue pill ideology is because of this lack of effective modeling of someone showing you, right, this is how it goes. Now, most indigenous cultures did have something like this, right? It was, and you know, it was a very active, Moment, uh very it was it was a ritual. It was a rite of passage. The rite of passage usually was around the time of puberty, when is when he enters sexual maturity, which you know is an undeniable time. And regardless of what society or culture says about gender or or ways people should be or how it's all a construct, puberty is a very clear thing. Like there's a program in each of our bodies, in every child's body, that at a certain age some. Switch flips essentially, and there's a flood of new hormones, and the body actually changes. Like you're you're almost a different animal from pre-puberty to post-puberty. Uh, this is this should come, or we've evolved to have this come with a very big change in consciousness. Obviously, that happens naturally. You know, you become more interested in in intimacy uh, with whatever type of person you're attracted to. You have different uh, feelings, you have different self-concepts. This is also the opportunity for greatest uh, confusion, right, in the teenage years. The indigenous right, or the primitive person's uh, right of passage, tried to solve a lot of what we might call teenage problems beforehand. The right of passage for men did a few things. One, it was a clear, marked difference from him being taken from the land of women, the land of his mother, to the realm of men, Right in in many cultures the boy was literally taken or sometimes abducted in in a forceful way from the land of women when the time was right he spent some time with men the rite of passage usually came with some learning some hard truths about nature right he is no longer to be protected in any fashion right he needs to go out and experience things for himself whether it's battling the elements the cold you know hunting something dealing with pain dealing with suffering he has to learn that nature is metal this is one of the big things that are, are lost to people and specifically men. And I think, you know, if, if you take the, the red pill uh, perspective, is that people have been raised, men have been raised to not really understand the truths of nature, to not really understand that things are not fair, for instance, that power in the natural realm is kind of the only law. You know, it, you know outside of human societies, what makes something right or wrong is power, right? It's not to say, I'm not making a comment on how things should be or that, you know, that rule of might is correct by any means. But these are truths about reality that many people are conditioned to not believe or not be aware of. And in many ways, in, in many areas of life, it doesn't matter, right? Like It is true that in modern life, people, men don't have to hunt their own food you know, all those we don't have to. Most of us don't have to engage in combat for our security or the security of our family. A lot of these things are true, and a lot of those impulses and skills maybe aren't not necessary. One of the places that the the truths of human nature and the truths of nature and how power is law and how you know our genes are selfish still holds true, no matter how society develops, is in our sexual behavior. This is one of the reasons why the red pill community focuses almost entirely, even though it's a, a place for men to develop their masculinity. I don't know if that's how red pillars would describe it, but almost everything is focused on women, the truths about women. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the adages that I think kind of promote resentment, even though they're true, are pointing out things like hypergamy and how women are always trying to marry up and they'll, they'll, they'll leave you if, uh, you know, if you show too much weakness, all of these things, all these things that are, that are true comes from like this hard truth perspective, partly because you know, we'll speak a little bit more about red pill in, in a few minutes. But they, uh, they mean essentially they're trying to correct from a lot of false belief that many men have, believing that uh, women want equality and women want meekness and all that stuff. Rites of passage, maybe maybe they wouldn't speak about intersexual dynamics in this way, but overall they would let the young, the boy becoming a man know that nature is hard. Nature is not fair. There are asymmetries. That is just how it is. And this is not meant to beat him down, although it is perhaps uh, partly meant to calm his hubris, you know, he's got this surge of testosterone. Uh, he needs to know that there are limits. He needs to know that he can't beat a bear, or that he can't, you know, be an arrogant dickhead. Because there are real uh, consequences to every action. But it is also to teach him that, with recognizing the truth about nature, he has power that maybe he didn't know he had. Right? It gives him an opportunity to test himself, of deal with the cold, or deal with some sort of grave discomfort. So he knows that within a certain range, within his limits, he does have a lot of agency. And this is why these types of like group challenges, I think are inherently appealing to men. Like eight months ago, I think it was, I spoke about how some friends, some guy friends and I uh, did this four by four by 48 challenge inspired by David Goggins, where every four hours we would run we ended up walking a lot of it, but it was still very challenging. Uh, do four kilometers every four hours for 48 hours, right? It was challenging, Right. My knee was swollen. It, it was it was difficult. Uh, also, you know, every four hours means you're not really sleeping. So, like, there was this physical discomfort. But there was something about doing, and and actually, a lot of people that we spoke to, namely women, didn't understand why we would do this. Like, how is that fun to do this thing that you get no reward for? To just put yourself through discomfort, and and it was hard to put into words to someone from that worldview because if you don't have the I don't know what we could call it, if you don't have the androgen receptors to, to benefit from putting yourself and seeing what you're made of, it's probably, it's probably a totally crazy thing, right? But if you do, if you are inherently masculine, if you have those androgen receptors, it does, you do understand that, oh yeah, putting yourself through a challenge, especially with friends, uh, with people whose opinions you care about, does something like some deep archetypal reward, of like, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we were supposed to do in our teenage years to show ourselves and show our, our allies what we're made of. This leaving from the realm of women to the realm of men is uh, is shown in the monomyth as the call to adventure, right? I could look at, uh, in Lord of the Rings, Frodo leaves the Shire. He leaves the Shire guided or called to adventure by a real man. A real man has seen the world, Gandalf, And he gets to leave the Shire where he was basically completely safe, right? Like he never got to test his mettle and never get to to see anything about himself uh, staying here. He got to, you know, this call to adventure was like his rite of passage to leave, to enter a new world where he's now no longer a boy, but a man. In many human nomadic cultures, exogamy was the norm. Exogamy meaning marrying, you know, exo meaning... Outside marrying outside of your tribe, in different cultures, there's different forms of it. Uh, I think in in more recent centuries, it was more common for the woman to leave. But I do believe, I mean, this is perhaps all speculation, but kind of makes sense to me that for our earliest um, earliest ancestors, pre-agricultural ancestors, it's probably the men that left because men have a natural impulse to go out and find their own way to make their own fortune to be on their own for long stretches of time it kind of makes sense to me that uh you know this impulse to explore the world which we can see in video game addiction primarily uh, an issue with men this is this impulse this uh this strategy for going out on your own entering the great unknown seeing what happens and perhaps finding mates outside of your tribe and just the attempt at exogamy or we could just say just the the whole thing of leaving your tribe it does seem to do something positive for most men. I mean, it's something that I, I recommend to almost all young guys who are still in the, in the city or town they were born in to just go somewhere new to challenge themselves. And, you know, and to, to relate this to something I spoke about in the uh, how to be attractive to women episodes, we spoke a lot about dominance hierarchies there. One of the best ways to ascend a dominance hierarchy to, to, and, and jump rungs in a given ladder, a status ladder, is actually to leave the ladder completely, do some things that are not available to the people who stayed in that ladder, stayed on that ladder, and then come back. You could come back and jump rungs, right? And we can see this in, you know, like when someone, uh, you see this in corporate America. Someone leaves a company, has some experiences with another company, comes back at a much, much higher position, Whereas peers who stayed can only go up incrementally. Um, I recognized this when I was in the cult. Uh, there's a very clear, like, a social hierarchy there, you know, and, and you can only advance, uh, step by step. But if you left and did something cool out in the world and came back, you almost always got a higher status. And you can see this in many things. This is actually almost exemplified in the prodigal son myth, right? Um, and that, that was the prodigal son, uh, thing. It, I mean, it confuses a lot of people, right? Even in the story, it confuses the the brother who stays, right? So like the story is uh, one of the sons of this, uh, I guess, a Semitic family. He leaves, goes out and sees the world, uh, comes back. And then when it comes back, the father praises him and gives him this lavish banquet and whatnot. Uh, he's the son that came back. And the son who stayed complained is like, well, how come? I mean, I actually stayed. I actually was loyal. How come I'm not getting a celebration and, uh, you know, at least this is what I was told. I must've, is this a, I think it must've been told in a Sunday school maybe, but the, the, what the father says is, well, he actually came back. Like He went out and he actually came back and that's why we're celebrating him. It didn't totally make sense to me. <laughs> like the lesson there, but I think, you know, there's kind of like this rooted thing in exogamy of like, you're actually benefiting your bloodline by going out and seeing the world and exploring things right this i mean it's it's kind of a natural boyhood implu- impulse to explore whether the real world or in video games now the transition you know in lieu of a rite of passage because most of us d- didn't have a clear rite of passage even if you had a bar mitzvah or something like that you know nowadays no one actually takes it seriously that you've become a man like it doesn't actually it's more of a you know a, a cultural thing it's not really uh, exemplifying a transition into adulthood. No one's treating a post-bar mitzvah kid, a 14-year-old, as a real man. So because of that and this is my theory of where teenage angst comes from, because of that, just like at you know, the transition from infancy to boyhood, there is a rebellion, right? Teenage rebellion comes from this. And you know, bring this back to the Nietzsche uh, model of metamorphosis he says that going from camel. The, the hardworking, you know, willful servant, essentially, to the next stage, he must kill the dragon. And in Nietzsche's model, the dragon represents authority. It could be a society, it can be parents, it could be any, any controlling figure. And uh, the image of the dragon is used because the dragon has scales and every scale is a law or a rule. And the way that the person transitions from camel to the next stage, which is lion, is... Kills, you know, basically has to peel off all those scales. Has to kill that whole body of authority that's oppressing him and keeping him hardworking as, as a camel who doesn't get to really do anything for himself. Now, whether someone is willing and able to make that act of rebellion in their mind of uh, rejecting uh, the laws and authorities uh, and rules that he's, you know, that he was born into, regardless of whether he makes that mental shift his body's going to shift, right? So I'm calling this next phase, phase three, adolescence. Of course, you remember what puberty is like. Your body changes rapidly, your personality changes. I mean, you're, you, again, you're basically becoming almost a different type of person, a different species almost. You're a different creature than you were pre-puberty. And of course, this is seen as one of the more confusing times in terms of identity and belonging and who you are and what you like. It's also a very beautiful time, a great opportunity. Again, I would argue that many of the issues that are typical for teenagers are, are due to the fact that actually, well, two things. One, there's no rite of passage that gives them a clear function or, you know, a, a new way to use their basically newfound vehicle. Um, the second is that in our cultures now, a modern society, we treat teenagers, we treat adolescents, uh, still as children. Which, uh, you know, just like treating an in, uh, treating a three year old as if he was an infant gives him this feeling of rebellion where he he just, you know, he wants to be a hard ass and like, and rebel essentially. The same thing happens, I would say, of course, to an adolescent. An adolescent, everything in a, a teenage boy's body is saying, I need to do some of my own things, right? I need some responsibility. I need some real power. Uh, I want to, I want to conquest. I want to fight. I want to go to war. I want to do these things. I want to adventure. And if not, I have to rebel. Adolescence is the mark of the beginning of peak virility, right? Uh, I mean, an adolescent can actually impregnate a woman and be a father. He's no longer, I mean, he's, he has entered sexual maturity. And in this, we see his relation to the feminine. Really change, or it should shift from relating to the feminine as mother to relating to the feminine as a peer or a lover. Right? Uh, obviously, a boy-to-mother relationship is very different than a man-to-woman intimate relationship. And I think this is, uh, you know, it's a shift again from being servant, uh, being a servant or dependent to a, a peer, or, or in a sense, a rival. If you if you look at genetic strategy, we'll talk about that in a second. This shift from mother to lover is represented by the Oedipus myth. I spoke about this specifically, like this the Oedipus thing, uh, more directly in the Mother Complex episode. I think it's, it's titled Slaying Medusa. If you want to check that out, you can. Um, but more briefly, um, the Oedipus myth you know, young man grows up, accidentally kills his father, marries his mother. You know uh, Freud said uh this is because you know Freud said that all young men secretly want to sleep with their moms and kill their dads uh at least that's you know how it's often spoken about, as we mentioned, you know archetypal symbols are impersonal, right this idea so so my interpretation of the Oedipus myth is that it's a a recharacterization of the the man the young man's identity right the the whole killing of the father represents you're no longer going to follow his direction and his uh, expression of masculinity, right? You're no longer a squire. You're no longer a servant. And, you know, the killing the father thing is kind of, you know, if you look at it biologically, it's like you are taking his place as the representative of your genetic lineage, right? If you just think of uh, our selfish genes, father, his genes are in his son, you know, assuming the same genes are, are in the in, same genes are in both father and son, and they want to maximize the reproductive success, it makes sense that uh, they would favor the son. Like, there's almost maybe a program to kill your father, in, in a sense, you know, metaphorically. I'm sure in some species, I mean, in some species this happens, right? The sons will rise up uh, against the alpha father and take his place once they're strong enough. And this is also represented in fiction in the Star Wars universe uh, by. This this might be an obscure reference, uh, but not if you're a Star Wars nerd. Um, The Sith, who are like the evil Jedi, they have this uh, practice called the Rule of Two. Whereas the Jedi, you know, they're kind of a collectivist group. The Sith Lords, there's only ever two Sith Lords. There's a Master and Apprentice. Once the Apprentice becomes strong enough to defeat the Master, he kills his own Master and then takes on our Apprentice. And I, I've uh, searched online for like the logic behind this, like how could the Sith ever grow as a as a as a group if they, if they do this thing? And, and why would anybody become a Sith lord, knowing that his own apprentice is going to kill him at some point? Um, and I've se- seen different answers for different Star Wars nerds. Uh, but it kind of is representative nature, like this thing that we're describing, right? You, you take your father's place. like the, the lineage is a straight line. So you take your father's place. And you are the, represent, re- represent, the representative of your genetic line for the time being until you're then replaced by your son. So you kill your father, take his place. Taking his, taking his place means now, you know, metaphorically marrying your mother. I don't think it means, like, literally guys want to bang their moms. It's that the mother, throughout infancy and transitioning in boyhood, certainly in infancy is the representative of the feminine, right? It's impersonal. She's just like an impersonal face for all women, in a sense. Marrying your mother is now taking a step into, well, if you're engaging with a woman in that way, she can't possibly see you as a child. I think this whole thing has been sublimated in uh, what's in our popular culture known as the MILF fantasy, Right. Uh, you know, we spoke about the, the creation of that term in American pie and how it normalized the idea of young men finding older women attractive or um, women of his mother's age attractive. What I do think it is, you know, is again, not that guys literally want to do this, is that if you could engage sexually, if you're engaging sexually with a woman your mother's age, that is kind of proof to that whole generation. If we look at it symbolically, right? Like where one woman represents all women, it's proof that you're no longer a kid. You know, a woman of that age, you know, women are not going to see you as a child if you've just slept with them. Because the sexual fantasy, and we speak about all sexual fantasies soon, or all fantasies rather, are, I think very often they are indicative of some feeling of lack or some some change that the unconscious wants to go through. So um, this move from being a, the child of a mother to a lover is this move of dependent, of, of basically being inferior or uh, lower lower status in the chain to being equal or higher status. And this adolescence and this, you know, if you think about the way that most teenage boys begin to view women or or see women in in you know cultures that maybe they haven 't been influenced in another way, there is kind of an objectification that is almost natural now i you can you can argue that everything is cultural like what what is the, the the natural way we we don't actually have a sample of that, but I think there is something natural about this temporary phase of kind of seeing women almost as a rival or someone you 're kind of competing. Because if we look at from an evolutionary biology perspective or sexual anthropology, there is uh, competition between the sexes in the sense of women have limited wombs, men have unlimited sperm, but limited provisions. So it kind of makes sense that especially at, in youth when uh, virility is extremely high, but ability to provide is low, that there's some sort of, uh, you know, not everyone's going to get their needs met, right? In, in the same way, spe- at least if a woman and a man of the same age, of the same young age, are together, you know, everything in his instincts wants him to spread his seed as much as possible because, you know, he's the most uh, fecund of his life, but he can't really, he's not very able to stick around and provide for them anyway. So, it's almost like the best strategy for his genes to do as much spreading as possible. Whereas, for a woman, whether she's 20 or 30 or, or any age, you know, in, in sexual maturity, she only has one womb. So, like, there is, you know, and we see this in, in in common dating culture, especially with young people dating, it's usually the woman that wants to to lock things up and the man who wants to explore more. It's like the common trope, and there's there are bio- biological reasons for this. And I actually think, and you know, and one of the reasons why I really want to make this episode, especially for... Some of the, the younger listeners let'll say guys in their twenties is that and, and i I've noticed that you know I felt this pressure when I was younger to sometimes you know you know, there's a lot of shame of say playing the field or nowadays like and, and perhaps it is a reaction to unhealthy or unuseful behaviors of the past. obviously, there are men who've done asshole things to women, there's women who've done ass you know, the equivalent to men a lot a lot of our cultural. Paradigms are our reactions to something that somebody did at some point. But when I see a lot of guys feeling ashamed of their natural instinctual desires to, let's say, date around and not settle down, you know, I, I, you know, one, I don't want anyone to feel ashamed, right? That's not useful. But two, uh, I actually think not really taking advantage of this phase of your life. We could call it you know, the adolescent phase, or it's the it's the warrior phase that corresponds with the warrior archetype, where you're not trying to really rule. You're not trying to own things. You just want to go out and conquest. I think it's actually critical if in a later point, you do want to settle down, be a husband, be a father, be a committed partner. It's almost critical to have had some expression. Uh, and, and I see this in in Guy's I know who say are around my age or, or whatever. And they're thinking about settling down. I've heard from a lot of guys of like, yeah, you know, I, I do kind of want to settle down, but I never had that, like, sow my wild oats phase, right? And it kind of eats it guys. And, and maybe part of it is, uh, you know, this feeling of inadequacy created by propaganda, like the, like the pickup artist culture saying every guy needs to you know do these kinds of things. But it's also, I think, in, instinctual. Because in this adolescent phase, this warrior phase where a guy, you know, a young man has just had his rite of passage, his body has just changed, he has his new surge of testosterone, this warrior phase is where he gets to discover his limits. Right. This, this, uh, the whole part of this young man phase is all about accumulating potential energy, essentially. Right. It's, it's a, it's, a very anabolic phase. Right. He's building up his body. He's building up his bank account. He's figuring out what he wants to do with his life. This is more the modern thing. Right. In more in, in antiquity, he was learning what kind of warrior he was going to be and, and how to, you know, be with men and how to make a mark on the world. This is the phase of life where he's going to determine his peak level of status, his peak uh, level of attractiveness, his wealth. In this phase of life, men typically become very interested in material goals. How much weight can you push? Uh, how much money are you making? You know, these tangible things you know, maybe some people try to shame it as like, Oh, those are so such base desires. They're, they're material only. It's like, yeah, but this is important, right? This is the only phase. I mean, this is the phase in his life where a, a man has evolved to, to see where his maxes are, right? This has actually been, uh, it's kind of silly. And you know, this is very male ego stuff, but I've gone through this thing this year. Uh, Partly driven by, you know, becoming a dad, but I think also just, you know, just the reality, recognize the reality of when it comes to certain physical things, for instance, it's only dawned on me this year that my maxes, my, my best performances with, you know, say, say, strength things are behind me, right? (laughs) Like, like when I was 23 and I hit what is now my max deadlift. I thought for sure I was going to put on another 100 pounds, right? I was 23. I, I pulled, I think, 395. It was like, oh, I'll definitely pass 400. I'll probably hit the 450 or something, right? Like I, I, you know, and again, you know, all of this stuff doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter how much you can lift. In fact, I'm realizing that those types of goals were kind of damaging to my body and perhaps self-esteem in, in some way, but kind of just recognizing of like, oh shit, like I'm not even that old. I'm only 33, and some of my best—I mean, probably all of my best—physical performances are behind me. That's kind of a bummer, right? I mean, and I think that's part of that's part of entering the next phase. But it's also a recognition—a thing that maybe has bummed me out a little bit, and perhaps bums out a lot of people. Just you know, in any in any stage of getting older, is of recognizing of like, oh, the window has closed. Sh- certain ships have sailed. Certain windows have have closed. And I, and I say all of this. I guess for for younger men who are still in this phase of like you know not stressing about things that you can deal with as an older man, really focus on the things that you're probably naturally interested in anyway, which is accumulation of of potential energy in the sense of you know in energy in the sense of the ability to do work. You know your status, your wealth, your purpose, your creative capital, all of these things that can be that can allow you to build things when it's time in your life to build things, there's a phase in your life where it's best to max these things out. You know, from the slave to king myth thing, at one point you will be king of something, but the respect a king gets, and if you look at like, you know, most mythologies, the respect the king gets comes from when he was a warrior, like before he was king, right? Like because when by the time he's king, he's a little bit older. He's not the, the best warrior by then, but, you know, he'll always regale the times, uh, people will always talk about the times when he was in his warrior phase, when he was out conquering, right? When he was rebelling, rebelling, right? It makes me think of like in Game of Thrones, um, you know, uh, the story begins after Robert's rebellion, but everyone's always talking about how strong Robert was when he rebelled against the king. Like that, that's what like made his mark and, and, um, determined his ability to become king. Now, a lot of what goes on in adolescence for a man and we're talking psychological adolescence, which usually ties to, to physical adolescence is this drive for power, this drive for again, potential, right? Potential of doing stuff. And, and I've spoken to many men about what goes on in their heads. I, I I strongly believe that the fantasies that we come up with, I mentioned the mill fantasy, like the fantasies that we come up with that, that naturally occur are almost, are almost always, and maybe always they, they reveal some sort of lack, right? It's like this, uh, the fantasy that comes to our mind is what our unconscious, you know, inner theater creates for us in a kind of an entertaining story fashion. Cause that's the language of the unconscious that reveals something that we need to go get, right? Um, when, when my friend Patrick was on, uh, you know, two episodes ago, uh, he was talking about how he fantasized uh, of being with prostitutes. Not not because, I mean, the main reason for that was that he felt that sex was always transactional, even in his relationships. I mean, it's my interpretation now. So it was something about prostitutes that like, it was almost a cleaner transaction when it came to sex. So that, that's where his mind went, right? The mill fantasy, typically, you know, Older men don't typically have milf fantasies. as younger men who want to prove to that generation of women that they're men, right? I think that's where the milf fantasy comes from. Uh, you can you can actually look at almost any sexual fantasy that isn't environmentally conditioned, right? Like we're, you know, I mean, it's one thing if uh, you know you're you're flooded with images of a certain thing and that's why you fantasize about it, but if you have uh, kind of a, a random longing for a thing, or like a random thing that you find really interesting, and it hasn't been conditioned or imprinted from something. I would propose that it, it is a signal from your unconscious of this is something that you're that you want more of. Outside of sexuality, there's two uh, there's two fantasies that I've heard from men a lot. One is that of being an MMA fighter, right? And, and I think you know this is a, a bigger part of just like of fighting, right? When I, I, I've at times in my life where I felt really powerless and like perhaps low status, I was constantly thinking of like getting into fights. Like sometimes there are noble fights, like, um, I'm in a bodega and like the cashier's getting stuck up at gunpoint and I, you know, I do some crazy karate kick or something, you know, like whatever, like we, everyone, many men have fantasies like that. I've heard many guys like uh, fantasize about that. I've heard a lot of guys who don't even watch MMA say, of "Like, oh yeah, you know, I'm driving or I'm at work or something." I just like I'll fantasize about being an MMA fighter and getting my hand raised, and I don't even watch MMA, right? Like, it's like, and I think the MMA thing is just because MMA is popular in our culture now. What this type of fantasy reveals is this need for power, right? This need to win, this desire to win in zero sum competition. You know, a physical fight, a physical or altercation is the most simple representation of power over others, meaning you're no longer the loser. The second fantasy that I've heard a lot of, which is something I also resonate with, and I've heard this so many times from, from many men lately, is that a lot of guys fantasize about talking to Joe Rogan in their head. Um, and, and this one it always makes me laugh a little bit, because one, I, I do it too. In fact, uh, a little secret... Many of and this has happened less and less recently, but a lot of my uh, solo podcast ideas and the stories I tell come from me like riffing on this fantasy. Especially, I don't smoke. Uh, I don't smoke pot that much anymore, but when I used to, especially when I lived alone, I would get high and I would have my notebook. I would end up just talking to Joe Rogan in my head, and then I'd be like, "Oh shit, that, those are those were good and useful. I should I should write that down, and those become a solo podcast." And to me, in that you know, the MMA fighter fantasy or the, the winning a fight fantasy is a need for power or dominance. This talking to Joe Rogan in your head thing, which is a very common male fantasy, is uh, a need for expression. You know, it's kind of like the, it's the it's the sword and the pen, if you will, right? Power and expression, and this all comes from this uh, overall thing of being able to make a mark on the world, it's like to to matter, right? If you win a fight. You've asserted your physical will on a reality. If you're talking to a guy who, I think anyone who has this Joe Rogan fantasy has some respect for Joe Rogan, or he's a person who, uh, whose attention one would care about, this fantasy of talking to Joe Rogan in your head is basically, oh, a guy who I respect, respects me back, right? I think that's just like, you know, because the, the guys who I know who fantasize about this, or who've told me at least, They often, they have a lot of good ideas and they don't have people to listen to it. And and I'll speak for myself because actually this kind of fantasy I've had since I was like my, some of my earliest memories, like seven years old, I wasn't with Joe Rogan. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't popular at the time, but I I grew up very shy. I, I would have a lot of ideas. I would think about things and want to say things, but I was inhibited. So sometimes I would go a whole school day without saying anything. And the things I wanted to talk about and think about, you know, Were't what most of my peers wanted to, and at night, I would, I'd be in bed, I'd hear my parents listening to the Tonight Show or watching the Tonight Show in the next room, and I would have these, like, for the entire duration that my parents were, you know, watching Jay Leno, in my head, I'd be on the couch talking to Jay Leno, or he'd be inter- interviewing me, and I would be saying all the things that I wanted to say all day and all my theories about things and all the stories that I think are cool. And I've, con- I've continued that basically my whole life, which is maybe how I ended up becoming a podcaster and doing this, because now I finally get to do this for real. Um, but I think a lot of people have this, this need for this expression. And it's actually funny, this random anecdote. I started, what, the very first episode of Joe Rogan that I watched was uh, J- uh, listened to was Jay Leno as a guest. And I clicked on it just because I had this like childhood affinity for Jay Leno. Uh, And then it was kind of like a passing of the torch where like my fantasy switched from talking to Jay Leno on the Tonight Show to then talking to Joe Rogan. Um, But but I'll say once I started making these solo episodes, which I, this is my favorite form of expression that I've ever had. Uh, And I've done a lot of things the fantasy goes away or the fantasy reduces, I should say. And I think that is a sign when it comes to all fantasies, sexual fantasies, power fantasies, expression fantasies, when the fantasy itself becomes a little bit less compelling, it's usually a good sign, meaning that that need is actually being fulfilled in the real world. So your unconscious doesn't have to create, you know, create the projection in your mind. Because very often what we seek for entertainment are these lacks? Uh, You know, this is a a key lesson in in my archetype challenge is to to recognize what types of entertainment you're drawn to. So in the adolescent phase, uh, I mentioned in the intro, for some reason, it seems like 14-year-old boys universally love Scarface. Uh, Tony Montana's Rise to Power. It's all about, I mean, he's got that line in the beginning, you know, first you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the women. It's all about this whole thing, this whole adolescent drive to accumulate, this anabolic phase of like bulking up, you know, metaphorically or or physically. But, you know, to a 50-year-old, Scarface, you know, or even to myself in in my 30s, eh, Scarface isn't that cool, right? I think it's cool because I have fond memories of watching it when I was 14. But now it's like, ah, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a lot of like adolescent images, so our fantasies reveal like where we feel like we're low on a certain attributes, and even this model of attr— you know, this model of seeing yourself as attri- having these different attributes and seeing other people also kind of an adolescent worldview. And I think I think this might actually be reinforced by video games and video game culture. I have friends who have played a lot of RPGs and. The way they talk about people, I have this one friend. He's played a lot of, and he used to be really addicted to RPGs. And the way that he talks about people, it's almost like he's comparing stats all the time. It's like, like you know, comparing how much XP you have in like different different areas of your life. Of how cre- this person's more creative, but this person's more a lot. Like you know, he's like he's he's very much on stats, and even how he talks about himself. And I think this is from uh, playing a lot of video games. And I even remember in my early days in the pickup artist community. I mean, the pickup artist world was created by nerds, guys. You know, very left-brain guys who who didn't get to date a lot. Uh, even the pickup culture, this is idea of like of getting your stats up, right? I remember um, the dating coach I worked for 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 a period he would say, oh yeah, like your, your, your humor, they talk about it like, like they're talking about like my scorecard, like, oh, your humor is really good. And like your, your uh, touch is really good, but your dominance levels are really low. The way he would say it is like, yeah, you have almost no dominance, right? You need to work, you know, that's the stat that you need to get up. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I used to think of it as like kind of a childish way to look at character development. But actually, you know, it it, it makes sense if you look at adolescence as a time to get your stats up as high as you can before the next phase where you're now using the stats that you've built up. It does make sense. Now, I mentioned how the, how teenage rebellion is essentially this like archetypal fight of, you know, shifting, you know, in Nietzschean terms from the camel to the lion, you know, the lion, what defines the lion. I mean, uh, I might not have said that earlier, but the Nietzsche's phase that corresponds with this is the lion phase. Uh, the lion rejects everything. Uh, what defines the lion is that he's specifically fighting against what oppressed him when he was a camel, uh, when he was uh, you know in, in more of a slave realm. Um, so Nietzsche pointed out the lion in that the lion is not really free because the lion is engaged in rebellion. He's he's defining who he is as the opposite of where he came from, or, he, or, or the opposite of what the perceived dragon or authority wants. Very often when it comes to correcting an imbalance, you need to go to extreme. And I spoke about this with Patrick last episode on like how some of his fantasies were to overcorrect for uh, some false beliefs he had. And you know, I, I think that's useful. Like, you know, certainly if you feel oppressed, it makes sense to have that feeling of rebellion and, and a lot of the red pill community's advice comes from this lens of like rebelling against feminism and, you know, the nice guy influences, I mean, what they call blue pill ideology. And again, as I said right in, right in the beginning of this episode, it's a very useful doctrine for guys who grew up too soft, who, who just don't understand female nature or human nature. But my big issue with red pill is that it keeps got it's like it's it's only from this adolescent phase of rebellion, and at no point does I mean I, I haven't read anything in in red pill stuff, which I generally you know I don't disagree with a lot of it. It just comes from this idea that you always have to kind of be at war, at war with yourself, at war with women and their impulses and their and their manipulations. Like this, there's this presumption that you can never stop and you're always battling, which in my opinion is useful in the adolescent phase of the male psyche, but it's not so useful in later phases. But to be clear, I mean, one of the reasons why I've recommended Red Pill to so many people and why I bother talking about them in this podcast, even though I don't subscribe to, you know, that, that worldview in itself, is that especially for anyone in this adolescent phase, which could be actual adolescents, young men, I mentioned earlier, you know, for an older man who's recently divorced and back on to the dating scene back or, or even someone starting a new career or entering a totally new field where they're now in this like accumulation phase maybe going back to study this is also a form of you know psychological adolescence uh you know this this drive for power is so critical and one of the values i think of red pill ideology is that it allows men to not feel ashamed for the accumulation of power so much of it is because of female dynamics. They always are talking about hypergamy from the evolutionary lens that women want, you know, have limited limited eggs. They want to use those eggs, uh, connect eggs with uh, the best genetic opportunity that the most alpha male is possible. So it is all about power. I mean, a lot of it is about power. Uh, Sexual dynamics occur at a level of our nervous system that is a far more primal than our cultural ideas or our social norms even, which is why, you know, you often... There's the whole trope of the bad feminist who believes in all of these things of men and women should be the same and this and that and women in power and all this independence stuff, but in the bedroom they still respond to submission. I've had a lot of friends and and lovers in New York who had like you know women who are feminists who had this kind of like you know internal uh, conflict, this cognitive dissonance, this pain because their ideology did not match up with their bodies. Anyways, red pill world and a lot of the tactical stuff that they teach is based on the idea that because women uh, want to maximize their genetic, uh, their reproductive success, which for women does not come from spreading a seed uh, to a million, uh, million places, but getting the best one quality, they have to test for power. Um, and, and most of the useful uh, dating and relationship advice from that world comes from teaching men to, uh, how to demonstrate and actually have the power to pass the the tests of women, um, so that they actually want to be with you. And I spoke about this a lot with Patrick in that uh, last episode, in that, you know, just like we were speaking about in in how nature is metal, and in nature, power is the only ethic, when it comes to human sexual nature, this is not the only thing that's true, but it's one of the big driving forces. Women are testing for power because it's actually not a kind thing to her reproductive instincts to show weakness because she's not going to feel safe. She's not going to feel, you know, even if, if even if a guy who's like very pro-feminist and wants to... Actually, an example, I was coaching a guy some time ago uh, where he really cared about his girlfriend. His girlfriend was, you know, uh, a very passionate woman, let's say, and he could not seem to make her happy. You know, uh, she would, uh, he would ask her like, like, what is it that you want? Uh, you know, can you just tell me? And she would like list off of all these demands and he would do all the things, but there are always more demands. And, and you know, it seemed like, you no, know, no matter how much he tried to check all the boxes on her checklist, uh, she, he could not really fulfill her. And it reflected to him that actually trying to fulfill the checklist was failing, In her eyes, right? It might not have been conscious, but every time he was basically in a subservient role, she was not feeling safe because she did not want to be with a man that had to be told what to do. Because her, you know, millions of years of reproductive instincts uh, are saying that only, maybe not millions, uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, were saying, "Don't procreate with a man who's not sure of himself." So every every time that he was doing what she wanted, he was actually doing what she didn't really want. Power is the thing. And as Patrick uh, mentioned on the episode, like he realized power is neither good or bad. It is just a thing. And you can, you can only do good or bad with power. Uh, so it's a critical thing. And I think it's really great that the Red Pill community and other sources are taking the shame away from power. It is a huge semantic disturbance to believe that power is bad. But as I mentioned, adolescence is not the final phase and I think as any phase as infancy or boyhood to get stuck in adolescence to just stay here is not useful. Um uh you know the, the my examples are like red pill guys and I've I mentioned pickup guys that I knew uh 10 plus years ago kind of just staying in pickup mode they're never happy. Like their relationships tend to suck, you know, you know, guys who are my age or a little older they don't really want to be going to clubs. I don't know what people do in COVID nowadays. They don't really want to be living that lifestyle anymore. That's not that interesting anymore. But that's just what they know how to do. And they're kind of stuck in this mode that was very fulfilling when they were 24, not so fulfilling when they're 36 or whatever age. Not that there's a specific age you have to transition from one to the other, but it's natural to notice a shift. Like Even uh, even my friend uh, Miska, who was on the podcast a few months ago, and he's, he's a little younger than me, I think he's 26. He was noticing, you know, as he's grown as a man, he's just noticing like this kind of natural desire for children. And I think that that's that's our evolutionary longing, right? Men have some version of that, just like women have a biological clock. And I would define that as, uh, you know, in what we, defines this next phase of, of the king is that you are no longer living just for yourself. In fact, I think the king, the, the, the core of the king or fatherhood impulse is to oversee something beyond you. Now, what allows this transition from the warrior phase or adolescent phase to the the king phase or fatherhood phase is what I call total victory, right? If, and to use the slave, slave to king myth uh, images, right? You know, so that it starts off as a slave uh, in infancy becomes maybe a house slave or a, a servant, a willful servant, maybe a squire in boyhood. He rebels. He rebels against the authority, becomes a rebel warrior, goes out off on his own, he has like an, uh, an anabolic accumulation phase, anabolic meaning uh, your growth, you know, anabolic steroids, you're building your muscles, uh, accumulation of potential potential energy of power. But this rebellion, if it lasts forever, your army's going to get wary, right? Like no one wants to be in rebellion ever, uh, forever. At some point you want to win the war and preside over the country that you just won. And I think this is the natural impulse. It happens at a certain age when perhaps, you know, what, what total victory specifically means psychologically is total victory over your insecurities, both material and immaterial, right? Like I think a big mark of moving from adolescence into, uh, a more mature stage, what we could call the kingness, is you know, you've kind of figured out what you want to do for money. <laughs> you kind of figured out what your purpose is, right? Uh, those 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 questions are are answered. You're not you're not you're not living uh totally groundlessly, right? Certain things have settled down. The world might not be your oyster anymore. And that is the trade-off. Like it might not be that you can do anything or that you even want to do anything and everything, but you now have stuff. You've now uh, come down a little bit to earth. You've collapsed the wave function of all the possibilities of your future. And some things have um, become, I mean, things have become more secure. And also the immaterial things, right? Like, you know, your character, confidence, relationships with women. I mean, this is this is my big criticism of Red Pill is that hardly anyone is ever talking about Like really embodying it or I mean, maybe it doesn't have to be spoken about because again, they're probably addressing someone with an acute problem where they do have issues with women. But it seems like from, from my perspective, it kind of perpetuates guys, this ideology kind of keeps guys in this rebel warrior phase where I see guys who are, you know, quote unquote red pilled kind of still treating their wife like uh like a like a like someone they need to continuously conquer. In fact I have even seen this uh advice in red pill forums, whereas the actual guys who I think are most secure and happy in their relationships, they've achieved this total victory where like they don't even they don't even see a battle anymore. It's right. It's like they they've won so completely. And you know, to put it into like the relationship dominance terms, like their wife respects them so much, their self esteem is so high, they're so grounded in their masculinity that the idea of like doing some technique or making sure like you know they're controlling the frame, like they don't have to check in on it anymore. It's like it's they've achieved unconscious competence in that realm at least. I've also used the term total victory in like you know, in, in a given relationship, in a committed relationship, in say, dealing with, um, your partners, um, your partner's insecurities too, right? Like, uh, I, you know, I've had this discussion with a few different guys who maybe are dating a woman who has past traumas or she's adopted an ideology that's not very useful for the relationship, like some like depolarized, Uh, ideology, which just doesn't seem to work in in, uh, an intimate relationship. You know, um, there's, and a lot of guys, and this is even discussed in in red pill circles of like, you know, controlling the frame, uh, setting the reality, in in my opinion, as I mentioned in the high polarity relationship principles episode, um, you know, there's a certain foundation of interdependence that is what makes uh, a, a relationship between a masculine person and a feminine person work and it makes it very fulfilling if you're with someone with uh, an ideology that's not used that doesn't fit that or um or or is just like very traumatized that they can't you know can't can't be down with the interdependence that that uh, intimacy comes with it can kind of feel like a battle but the battle isn't you know or a war rather but the idea isn't to get good at battling so that you can can like you know Squash uh, the opposition, and just to be clear, the opposition isn't your partner. It's maybe the ideology or, or the the worldview or the traumas that aren't useful. But the goal should be to achieve total victory. Where now you've won the land, you've you know, defeated the 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 wrong ideology, and you've now achieved interdependence and harmony in your in your society. Like no one wants to be at war forever. So this this fourth phase. Right, we had first infancy, boyhood, and adolescence. This fourth phase is where the war has been won. You might still have rebellions, rebellions in the sense of like your your old insecurities might pop up sometimes, and you have to battle them. Or you know, you might have a relationship issue or something that threatens your polarized intimacy. That that's going to happen. But you're the king, right? That status, that status has been established. And what, what do we mean by king exactly? The king oversees the realm, right? In the simplest human societies, you know, he had the chief who kind of acted as the father of the, of the entire tribe or, you know, the early nation states or even modern day uh, countries. You know, there's like this perception that the, the leader of a country, the president, the prime minister is kind of the father. We don't think of it so much that, like this anymore, but certainly in monarchies, there's more of that sense. He is the protector of the realm. He is the representative of the realm to everyone else. He's what, who protects and provides. He, he, um, he ensures safety. He also ensures what to believe. In red pill terms, he provides the frame. He, he provides the, uh, the world in which people perceive things. And that is a, from a uh, anti-power, you know, I would call it woke or, or uh, perspective that kind of shames this idea or maybe calls it toxic. You know, this is actually a huge gift. I mean, there's a reason why men evolved, have evolved to find this idea appealing of being a king. You know, it's all the way down to like some of our simplest myths of Simba can't just wait to be king, right? Down to the, you know, the Lion King that you watch probably when you're four or five years old. Like that that impulse is, you know, it, that's it's almost, I mean, it's the fourth phase. It's the thing that we're kind of aiming for. It's, it's why uh, you... Uh, Learn the ways of men as a boy it's why you accumulate power as uh, as a warrior uh, the you know if the warrior phase is all about anabolics about building up uh, the king phase you still might you know you might still expand your borders in, in the sense of um, growing your business or developing your character learning new things things like that improving your relationship but here as a king you, you now are presiding over others and it's not it's a kind of like this transition point of not just you know not just anabolic of of building, but now it's like a, a shift towards catabolism like of spending right you have to you have to care for your children you have to you know preside over your employees or your company and i think this 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 father nature king archetype impulse comes over anything where you kind of want to take care of something that's or preside over something right even even a a man's impulse of water is lawn, which I never thought I would you know enjoy but this year, I you know I've taken, uh, yeah, I've cared more about my home than in other years, and there there is something kind of like archetypally. I know maybe sounds super cliche, and you know I'm thinking of my of my father like watering the lawn all the time, and like for some reason caring about it. I don't know. I just care about it now. Cause it's all about having a responsibility beyond yourself. You know, it it gets boring to always be out just for your own enjoyment forever. You know, uh, and I think you know when guys start to feel like sex is starting to feel meaningless, the same type of sex that maybe was very enjoyable in their twenties or, uh, you know, or I think I know, I know a lot of guys who made a decent amount of money in their life and they're like, well shit, like, what is it for? Like, I've already traveled a bunch. I've already had these experiences or even people, you know, who maybe haven't accumulated a lot. There is this, I think, natural movement towards wanting to look over something basically to have a realm and while this could happen at different stages, at different ages, it, it, I think it does come along with this physiological shift of essentially passing your peak. And, you know, it's not that you're not still virile, it's not that you're still not powerful, not that you're still going to grow in some way, but it's this uh, essentially trade-off, whereas in, you know, peak adolescence, you were at your highest virility, but very low pro- provisioning ability. At the phase of life, at the phase of the psyche of the king archetype, you actually have accumulated some stuff already, and it it uh, you have provisioning ability, and you're no longer at your peak virility. So it makes sense to make this trade off. You know, whereas like there's this kind of competition between young men and young women of settling down versus not. At a certain phase, when you've you know had certain experiences as a man, when you've you know accumulated potential energy it makes sense to start spending it and it makes sense to make the trade-off of settling down instead of, you know, from a genetic perspective, instead of spreading your seed as far and wide as possible, you focus on the kids you actually want to (laughs) raise, which I which I know, you know, sounds like very cold, but of course from our selfish genes it is. And this is not to say that, you know, that's what anyone should do, but it is to, you know, I guess de-shame or normalize the typical male Instincts of wanting to sow your wild oats when you're young, and then eventually settle down and uh, you know focus on quality over quantity at some point. Because you're you know your deadlifting max might be in your past, but your wisdom hasn't peaked yet. Your wisdom is going to keep going up, and that's what's important from for the king in in the slave to 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 king myth uh, is is his wisdom. Now it is important that he had a warrior phase where he did prove himself and prove his character on the battlefield. But you know, he's not the he's not going to be the strongest guy anymore. Uh he's more there to be a a model to other men now, a model to other people. He is now modeling the ideal man for his given tribe, which for people nowadays is typically uh typically their immediate family if 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 um, if a man decides to become a father and have a nuclear family. Uh, he is now the model for everyone younger. He's the model for his sons on how their boyhood imprint of masculinity will come from him. Uh, he's a model. And this is actually something, you know, in my search for good parenting advice, I did stumble on some stuff, uh, by Rollo Tomasi that, that I liked. Unexpected that I would, I would really enjoy red pill parenting stuff. But, you know, he has this thing about raising daughters, about how a man's role in raising his daughter is to model the type of Person, you want your daughter to be with, right? To model your ideal future son in law. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, uh, and this is something I, I've been thinking about independently because in my work with men, I've thought a lot about raising a boy and like what's ideal for a boy and like how I would raise a boy and raise a son. And, and, and uh, I hadn't thought much about uh, raising a girl. And of course, I'm expecting a daughter now. Um, so I, I've been thinking about it more recently. And I'm think about these little moments of like how I treat. Nalaya, how I treat our daughter's mother is imprinting to her how men, sh- how she'll expect to be treated by men, you know, how she'll react. Like, well, I mean, from things of like what she'll put up with and what she'll uh, appreciate, but also like her sense of humor with men and whether, like, how secure she is with different things, Like, Like, all of those things are being modeled. And probably the type of man, maybe not the type of man she'll be drawn to during her so called party years. Uh, maybe that'll be a rebellion, uh, female stages of the psyche or, different topic obviously um but probably the person that she sees as being normal uh and seeing and and determining as uh good values comes from from the man who is her father figure right so a man in the king archetype i mean a man who's the king of his family the uh, an, an actual father is modeling this uh the 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 king uh role in a company or a team or a country is also doing the same thing actually uh in 2016, when Trump got elected, I was living in New York. Most of my friends were very liberal. Liberal. A lot of people were very upset. A lot of my friends were feminists as well. Um, I mean, my, my female friends at least. And there's a, I mean, a lot of people were infuriated and heartbroken and upset. And I thought it was kind of silly how people were so crazy about it. Because at this point, I had already felt that uh, elections were like a silly ritual that our country engaged in. Uh, I feel ever more vindicated every election cycle <laughs> by that by that worldview. Um, but one thing that I, I'm only appreciating now, uh, one complaint that I, I heard from women who are really upset that Trump got elected, because I, I would ask, like, like, come on, like, okay, he's, he said some messed up things, his border policy is a little messed up, but you know, it doesn't mean he's gonna be a bad president, right? It doesn't mean, you know, maybe he has great financial, pol- fiscal policy, all that stuff, right? Um, a couple of them said, yeah, but all of that stuff he says on Twitter matters because he's becoming the moral standard for the next generation, which I didn't totally buy. You know, it's, I didn't think that was a reason to like, you know, try to remove him from office, but there is a point to that, right? Like the, the, especially to those in the boyhood phase, whether literal boys or adult men who are still in the boyhood phase, there is, you know, the, the, the chief male which in the United States is the president of the United States, in every country, you know, he is one of the core role models. And he does uh, imprint the country, uh, imprint the young men of the next generation of what's okay. He is the model. He is one of the criti- uh, key models for the next generation. And actually, you know, uh, I mean, other other really good red pill parenting advice that I got from Tomasi's third book on positive masculinity uh, I'm actually hoping to have him on the podcast so I can ask him specifically about uh, parenting from a from a positive masculine perspective. But another thing is that, and this is another thing I've also thought about before, in that raising children, the qualities that make one a good father are also the same qualities that make one attractive to women. You know, being grounded, being secure, you know, because kids throw shit tests also. In the same way that women test for your strength Kids do the same thing, right? And uh, being a good parent to them, making them feel safe, which is really what they need, doesn't always come from making them happy, right? If a kid knows he can get away with everything, he might be pleased in the short term, but he's not going to feel secure because his protector isn't secure, right? Like you actually, you know, leadership requires work and it is a responsibility. It's not just about showing how awesome you are. And, you know, because this is actually... Uh, Another separation from nature, in that nowadays one of the reasons why we see power as this negative thing is that there's all these people who abuse power, right? Uh, All these tyrant kings, all these Harvey Weinstein's, all these people, police, all this shit, right? But in our in our hunter gatherer uh, to our hunter gatherer ancestors, yes, the strongest or or wisest or you know most alpha male would become chief. But that that didn't mean he could do whatever he wanted. Even if he was the strongest warrior, and that's how he established his status, if he was a total asshole, because there were such small groups where everyone knew each other, like these groups, uh, less than 150 people, where people were bonded by direct social connection and not mythology, you know, when everyone had a direct relationship, and if the group was small enough that and, and connected enough that the, if they really found him to be an asshole— all the so-called beta men could team up against him and, you know, kick him out, right? So there was a natural check and balance and everyone had a direct connection with the chief. Whereas nowadays, you know, post-agriculture where people uh, stopped being bonded by direct social connection and became bonded by mythology, you don't actually know your king directly. The king doesn't actually know you. You have all these coalitions form. You don't actually know most of the people in your town or your city, nation, state, whatever. There's now an opportunity for um, I mean, there's there's a lack of check and balance, um, and I think you know, viewed from that lens, that in a healthy so uh, survival group and a healthy social unit, there should be that check and balance. Um, Power is not a bad thing. Power is a gift, you know, because you know, in, in the right under the right circumstances, a sane person would be. Encouraged or have the incentive to use the power wisely, I mean most parents mean the best for their kids, and for a long time long before I, I really had any other opinion about parenting and what makes a good parent, really, just from the perspective of talking to a lot of uh people about their lives where they they felt fucked up by something of their childhood, it seems like the only thing in the, that really makes a good parent or the thing that I know for sure is good for parents is to be secure individuals right to uh yeah, and this is true for leaders or anyone who's responsible for others. If you are insecure, you're causing your nation or your family to be insecure as well, um, both in emotionally, but also with your semantic perceptions. This king phase, this phase four, kind of separates from uh, the Nietzsche model. Um, the the final phase in Nietzsche's model is what he calls the baby. Uh, you know, so in Nietzsche's model, metamorphosis, there's a sheep. Uh, who follows, there's a camel who works hard, there's a lion who rebels, defeats the dragon. And then the baby is the one who's no longer acting reactively, right? Where the lion is defining his identity and purpose in rebelling against what he was oppressed, what oppressed him as a camel. The baby is now completely pure. And it's interesting that he uses the term baby. It's kind of like, I mean, it's the fool archetype where there's like pure, you know, um, Starting from scratch with uh, no imprints, no negative imprints, no imprints controlling, no reactions to imprints. You can really um, act freely. uh This doesn't really correspond with the king uh, king archetype. Uh, we could call a baby maybe a later phase of warriorness. And you know, Nietzsche wasn't necessarily going for stages of uh, male development, but I do, I do want to comment on this thing in that Nietzsche probably stopped here. He never got into a phase where you want to take responsibility over something greater than yourself, because from what we know of Nietzsche, it seems like he never really got to this phase anyway, right? He probably never even really reached the baby phase. It seemed like his personal life, despite having very influential and useful and thought-provoking work, didn't always live up to his adages. Uh, he didn't seem to be the most powerful man <laughs> that uh, you know one would think from his writing, and you know, and it seems you know, just like Freud, all of his theories went back to sex because, from what we know, Freud, he seems to have been quite sexually frustrated. So, of course, that's where his mind went. Uh, you know, Nietzsche's stuff about power and and nobility and uh, being able to act freely and not be oppressed probably came from the feelings that that was those were his core problems in his adulthood. Daryl Cooper, who's probably my favorite podcaster, Modern Made Podcast, has has an episode comparing Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, which is kind of interesting. I didn't actually listen to the whole thing, but basically about how Nietzsche kind of was a loser. (laughs) And and as much as I like his writing, you know, uh, he didn't always practice what he preached. But also, so with this, you know, there's actually five phases that I have identified. You know, from my own personal experience, I think I'm just entering phase four I mean, literally, but also in my mind. I, in fact, I'm I'm trying to catch up my mind to what's happening in my life. I'm a father, whether or not my mind goes there or not. So I'm trying to really make sure that I, I enter this father archetype and, and don't uh, don't hang on to to adolescent uh, worldviews or or our life strategies. Let's say, but I don't think the king is the last phase. And I actually think. Um, even, even I, mean, I call it the slave to king myth because you don't typically see hero's journey stories that go beyond kingness, but there is a phase after kingness. If we look at our biology, you know, there's, you know, there's the infancy and boyhood is pre-sexual maturity. Adolescence is peak sexual maturity into kingness, which is, uh, you know, later sexual maturity. But then, you know, men go through something, go through andropause, uh, some version of andropause, you know, much later than women go through menopause. But there's a point where genetically we are no longer passing on our genes right we've perhaps had sons we've you know had our children, our children maybe're having children, and we're no longer uh, the best bet for our genes to pass on into the next generation doesn't mean that we 're useless though, and this is the fifth phase, which is uh least appreciated in uh, modern Western culture, but very much appreciated in uh, some you know Older cultures, Eastern cultures, uh, indigenous American cultures, um, which is the, that of the elder, you know, African cultures, basically anything that's not like industrialized European still seems to worship their elders because this is a recognition that they hold the wisdom, right? They are past their virile years, the, the, the elder men. Uh, they are no longer, uh, fighting in battles. They're no longer leading the country. They're no longer passing on their genes but they have a wealth of information. They they they're they're now in the phase of total catabolism, total um total spending of resources, total breakdown. Whereas adolescence was about building up, king the king father phase is about transitioning into spending your resources for your progeny. As an elder, it's all about spending, right? This is like uh this is creation of your will, but also your uh your your will of wisdom, right? Passing it on to really making it not a, not about you anymore. You are no longer a player in the game. You are there simply to guide others. And I do think, even though I, I hope this this actual phase is uh, you know a long ways away from me. I mean, it's the final phase. The, the next one is death, um, is also a critical phase. I, I don't have any firsthand experience from this, but there is something that you know. I think all people, but men also. Get out of guiding younger men at any age, right? Even even if you're a young man, it, it feels good to coach uh, even younger guys uh, in sports or life or whatever. When you're an elder, that's all your. That's I, I mean, you can see this. This is some. This is an opportunity for great fulfillment, and in um, in our hunter gatherer past. These were critical people in the society, right? They were, they were worshiped. They were consulted by the chief, right? They might not make the the key decisions, but they, they, they have all the experience and, and know things. And from the Kaczynski perspective of achieving fulfillment where you know, like you don't fear old age or you don't fear death, I think there's something beautiful about really being happy to have entered this phase, really being happy to make your life no longer about you. I mean, this is where you don't see this in the hero's journey directly because the hero never reaches this phase. Uh, Most hero's journey stories stop at the end of adolescence or into into the kingship phase. But you do see that the elders, I mean, these are the mentors. This is Gandalf. It's not his adventure, but he's there to help. This is Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan literally sacrifices his life for, for Luke Skywalker. Because Obi-Wan did his warrior phase, did his hero's journey in the earlier episodes of Star Wars. By the time Luke Skywalker around is around, he's just there to guide Luke. You know, It's not about him. He doesn't even care about his own life anymore. It's about helping the next generation. Helping the success of your, future proje- of your, of your progeny to, to pass on uh, your genes even, even more. And you know, in our in our Paleolithic uh, ancestry, in those times, uh, this idea of like old, senile, dependent people—I don't think—I mean, it wasn't common for one. Uh, people probably stayed a little bit sharper later because they were just active, and two, they probably also died. Like, there probably there wasn't—you know—for someone to live where they can't really support themselves at all, and they're they're offering no wisdom to the tribe. Probably didn't last very long. In fact, um, and I think, I can't remember if this was in Sapiens or in the selfish gene, but there's something about, I think it was in Sapiens, where certain cultures, like, uh, still like tribal cultures in Africa, they actually have a practice of killing the old people once they got to the point where they're no longer, uh, a net positive once they become a liability. Um, so, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's not a very nice way to end, uh, speaking about this fifth phase, but it's just based on the idea that, is also a very useful phase that was seen and had a very critical function to our ancestors, and it's largely been lost um, in our culture. I mean, as Kaczynski pointed out, we kind of overvalue we we overvalue uh, early youth, right? People are women, men. We're always trying to act like we're twenty again, and cool. There's a lot of things you could do when you're twenty, especially when you have the wisdom of. 30, 40, 50. It's like, man, if I had my 20 year old body with my 30 year old mind, my 40 year old mind, what could I do? But like, that's just not how nature works. Unless you take steroids, which I'm not, I'm not against that, that idea. It's on, it's on the possibilities of my future. Um, (laughs) but, um, yeah, because the whole point of this, the reason why I want to go through these phases is that there are different strategies we've evolved to have for different phases of our, our evolution. I do think a man is most fulfilled as he when he passes from phase to phase in a natural way which means he fully completes one phase and goes into the next right he doesn't carry you know his mother-relating strategies into his adult life he doesn't carry you know his teenage rebellion into his father years right that that doesn't make sense it's not useful and since we don't have our rites of passage since we don't have these mechanisms kind of forced by our environments it behooves us to uh, take an active role of recognizing what phase we're in, what phase we want to be in, what phase have we been kind of moving towards, but maybe resisting and, you know, recognizing that there are things that are very useful in some phases and not for others and taking away the shame, right? Like my message to young men is like, man, see the world. Don't tie yourself down. Check out everything. You know, that will ultimately make you a more secure father in the future. You don't have to settle down when you're 24, you know, don't let yourself be shamed into it. Um, and then when time comes, the time comes, you know. So just as a recap, first phase, infancy, it's all about receiving. Second phase, boyhood, it's all about obeying and learning and modeling. Third phase is about rebelling if necessary, fighting your battles, accumulating, you know, building up and finding your own way in the world. The fourth phase, kingness or fatherness, is about ruling, presiding over others, over something beyond yourself. And the fifth phase, the elderly, is about spending everything you got for the next generation and guiding. Hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, This is the five phases of masculinity. I've mentioned a few other episodes you might want to go back to if you're interested. One is how to be attractive to women, speak about dominance hierarchies in that one. There's high polarity relationship principles. Uh, I mentioned uh, my recent conversation with Patrick from Germany, and I probably mentioned some other... Oh, and then Master Morality. If you're into the Nietzsche stuff, check out my episode on lambs and eagles, which is probably our most most listened to episode in the last year. Uh, if you liked uh, the Ronald podcast, it means a lot to me. Uh, if you rated it, if you like it, uh, and share this episode, if you want to uh, share it with someone, that's all I got. I probably had more calls to action, but... I don't remember. All right, goodbye. See you in the next episode.